From Creation Ministries International, you're listening to Creation.com's article podcast. The research and insights that give God the glory, refutes evolution, and gives you the answers to defend your faith. I'm Joseph Darnell. The publication of a new book, Darwin and Lady Hope, The Untold Story, by British research scientist Dr. L. R. Croft in 2012 has reopened this topic previously dealt with in detail by historian Professor James Moore in his 1994 book, The Darwin Legend. Both authors have researched the matter over 20 years, so I shall compare Croft's claim that Darwin did return to the Christian faith with Moore's claim that he did not, and then give my own analysis and conclusion. Because this article has been of necessity substantially more lengthy than most Creation.com items, extensive use has been made of sidebars like side items in the webpage on this article. So that you, dear listener, can follow the main thread more readily, we're skipping the side items in this podcast, and you can return to them to fill in the gaps if you desire. To get started, listeners should be aware of Moore's bias, typified by his reference to the matter as holy fabrication and the old evangelical slur. Hardly the impartiality required of a historian to inspire confidence in his objectivity. Lady Hope was an English evangelical activist, preacher, and temperance worker. Details of her childhood, family, marriages to Admiral Sir James Hope in 1877 and to T. Anthony Denny in 1893, her bankruptcy brought about by an ex-convict fraudster in 1911, her emigration to America in 1913, and her death in 1922 are detailed in the sidebar in this article on the website, Who Was Lady Hope? Did Charles Darwin become a Christian before he died? A new book raises the question afresh. By Russell Grigg. The following account of a meeting between Darwin and Lady Hope in 1881, written by her in 1915, is what has become known as the Lady Hope story. It was one of those glorious autumn afternoons that we sometimes enjoy in England when I was asked to go in and sit with the well-known Professor Charles Darwin. He was almost bedridden for some months before he died. I used to feel when I saw him that his fine presence would make a grand picture for our Royal Academy. But never did I think so more strongly than on this particular occasion. He was sitting up in bed, wearing a soft embroidered dressing gown of rather a rich purple shade. Propped up by pillows, he was gazing out on a far-stretching scene of woods and cornfields, which glowed in the light of one of those marvelous sunsets which are the beauty of Kent and Surrey. His noble forehead and fine features seemed to be lit up with pleasure as I entered the room. He waved his hand toward the window as he pointed out the scene beyond, while in the other hand, he held an open Bible which he was always studying. "'What are you reading now?' I asked as I seated myself by his bedside. "'Hebrews,' he answered. "'Still Hebrews. The royal book, I call it. Isn't it grand?' Then placing his finger on certain passages, he commented on them. I made some allusions to the strong opinions expressed by many persons on the history of the creation, its grandeur and then their treatment of the earlier chapters of the book of Genesis. He seemed greatly distressed, his fingers twitched nervously, and a look of agony came over his face as he said, I was a young man with unformed ideas. I threw out queries, suggestions wandering all the time over everything. 
and to my astonishment, the ideas took like wildfire. People made a religion of them. Then he paused, and after a few more sentences on the holiness of God and the grandeur of this book, looking at the Bible which he was holding tenderly all the time, he suddenly said, I have a summer house in the garden, which holds about 30 people. It's over there, pointing through the window. I want you very much to speak there. I know you read the Bible in the villages. Tomorrow afternoon, I should like the servants on the place, some tenants, and a few of the neighbors to gather there. Will you speak to them? What shall I speak about? I asked. Christ Jesus, he replied in a clear, emphatic voice, adding in a lower tone, and his salvation. Is not that the best theme? And then I want you to sing some hymns with them. You lead on your small instrument, do you not? The wonderful look of brightness and animation on his face as he said this I shall never forget. As he added, if you take the meeting at three o'clock, this window will be open and you will know that I'm joining in with the singing. How I wish I could have made a picture of that fine old band and his beautiful surroundings on that memorable day. That narrative first appeared in print in the American Baptist magazine, The Watchman Examiner, and a few days later in the religious section of the Boston Evening Transcript of the 21st of August, 1915. Croft tells us that a footnote in this newspaper said that Lady Hope had related it at a prayer meeting at a Christian conference held a few days earlier at Northfield College, Massachusetts. Then Professor A.T. Robertson, an eminent New Testament scholar, had repeated it from the platform. It was then written down by Lady Hope at the request of the editor of the Watchman Examiner. Moore adds that Robertson was filling in when none of the English guest speakers had shown up, being detained by illness or the 1914-18 through 18 war in Europe, and that he was expounding the epistle to the Hebrews from the original Greek at the morning Bible classes there. Since then, the story has been repeated many hundreds of times in Christian tracts, books, magazines, articles, and the like to the present day, usually with the added claim that it demonstrated Christian faith on Darwin's part. Two or three of the words in this account by Lady Hope seem to indicate that she may have visited Darwin more than once. Despite the family's denials, this is not unfeasible. Both Charles and Emma shared Lady Hope's concern for drunkenness, and would undoubtedly have known of the temperance meetings she had held in the villages near, as well as in Down in 1880-81. through Charles would have also known of and been very interested in her father's deep cultivation system of obtaining high yields of crops from the many reports about this in the press. She had met leading scientists of the day, including Darwin's colleague William Spottiswood, president of the Royal Society, who Croft says, just a few months earlier, had entertained Lady Hope on the veranda of his country house, which was in Kent. And Moore says that Darwin kept in touch with some of his former Beagle shipmates, particularly Bartholomew Sullivan, who himself achieved the rank of admiral and whose son had served under her husband, Admiral Sir James Hope. So Darwin and Lady Hope had plenty of mutual interests, which could have warranted there being more than one meeting. Moore concedes that Lady Hope was indeed invited to Downhouse to meet Darwin, and he says that her account of the meeting contains startling elements of authenticity. These include her description of the view from the Downhouse window, the sunset, the color of Darwin's dressing gown, his finger twitching, and her mention of the summer house in the garden which indeed existed at the end of the sandwalk, although it may not have been big enough to hold 30 people as Lady Hope remembered Darwin saying. 
From the weather details given by Lady Hope, compared with the national meteorological records, and noting dates from Francis Darwin was absent, Moore concludes that the meeting probably took place between the 28th of September and the 2nd of October 1881. From similar considerations, Croft opts for the 8th of November 1881. Darwin's family members were greatly shocked by the newspaper report of her story when it reached England. They mounted counterattacks involving denying that any such event had taken place and charging her with fabrication, even though, as Moore says, none of the deniers but Bernard was living full-time at home when the alleged interviews with Darwin took place, and Bernard was then a child. Nor in 1915 or 1916, when Lady Hope's story first came to the family's attention, was any adult alive who had been regularly present in Downhouse during 1881 through 82. First to enter the fray was Charles' son, Francis, who in 1887 had published an edited version of his father's autobiography, a work which Darwin had written principally for his family's interest. At the insistence of Darwin's widow, Emma, and with the family's eventual consensus, Francis had expunged from his work Charles' most vehement anti-Christian beliefs, along with some internal family relationships amounting to nearly 6,000 words. This concealed the depths of Charles' unbelief and allowed the family to present to the world their own sanitized image of Charles as the good and noble unbeliever, the gentlemanly agnostic. Croft quotes a letter of the 8th of November 1915 from Francis Darwin to Professor A.T. Robertson that said, Neither I nor other members of my family have any knowledge of Lady Hope, and there is almost ludicrous points in her statement that make it impossible to believe that she ever visited my father at Down. Moore quotes two Francis letters, in the one dated the 27th of November 1917. Lady Hope's account of her interview with my father is a fabrication, as I have already publicly pointed out. I have no reason whatever to believe that he ever altered his agnostic point of view, as given in my Life of Charles Darwin, in Volume 1, page 55. In a similar letter dated the 28th of May, 1918, Francis wrote, I have publicly accused her of falsehood, but have not received any reply. Concerning this, Moore says, The second letter mentions a public accusation, possibly 1916, which has not been located. Darwin's married daughter, Henrietta Litchfield, had a letter published in the Christian Journal in 1922, from which Moore quotes her as saying, Lady Hope was not present during his illness or any illness. I believe he never even saw her. He never recanted any of his scientific views, either then or earlier. We think the story of his conversion was fabricated in the USA. Later, Darwin's granddaughter, Nora Barlow, had her say. Moore describes it this way. In 1958, having just published the unexpurgated autobiography of Charles Darwin, with the damnable bits restored, she spied the old evangelical slur in the correspondence columns of the Scotsman. Moore reproduces Nora's reply, published on page 6 of the Scotsman on the 8th of May 1958. In it, she mostly quoted or paraphrased a letter of Henrietta's. The foremost modern-day criticism of the Lady Hope story is that of Professor Moore in the Darwin legend. Seeing he concedes the meeting did take place, all claims that it did not are not worth refuting. However, character assassination of Lady Hope is another matter. In Appendix D of the Darwin legend, titled Mr. Fagan Protests, 1925, 
Moore gives his readers two letters allegedly written by English temperance worker J.W.C. Fagan in May 1925, in reply to two inquirers about the Lady Hope story. One letter is said to be to a Mr. J.A. Kensett of the Protestant Truth Society, and another one, almost identically critical, to a Mr. J.S. Pratt of London. As these are the source of the worst and only character assassination of Lady Hope, apart from the charges of fabrication, you know, lying, I have examined them in some detail in another side item in this article on the website, wherein I give many reasons why they may not be relied upon. So much for the details of the Lady Hope story. The following relevant matters now need to be considered, assuming Lady Hope's record of her conversation with Darwin is a true account of what happened, but bearing in mind that there was no third party witness to this. Nor did either Charles Darwin or Lady Hope make any known diary or other record of the event. Number one, Lady Hope never claimed any conversation took place at the meeting. According to what Lady Hope wrote, no evangelism took place at the meeting. For example, when Charles mentioned Jesus Christ, Lady Hope did not ask him if he had accepted Christ as his own savior. And when Charles suggested she preach on salvation to the servants, she didn't ask him if he had accepted salvation for himself. So any claim that Charles embraced or re-embraced Christianity at this meeting is without foundation. Second, there is no written record by Darwin of any change of heart. Some Christians have claimed that Lady Hope's account shows that Charles had already returned to the Christian faith prior to the meeting, albeit in his advanced years. In support of this as a possibility, Croft cites Professor Anthony Flew, who lived in 1923-2010, to and Professor C.E.M. Jode, who lived in 1891-1953, to two of the most renowned British atheists of their eras, who both recanted very late in life and decided there is a God after all. In 2004, Flew in public repentance confessed, As people have been influenced by me, I want to try and correct the enormous damage I have done. He did this with his last book, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind, published in 2007. Likewise, Jode, who for years preached his atheistic doctrines weekly, courtesy of the BBC, in 1952, the year before he died, he recanted and published an account of his journey back to faith for all of his former listeners to read in his book, The Recovery of Belief. There is no known such ultimate book by Darwin in Penitence and Regret, although to write such a treatise would have taken time, possibly more time than there was before his death. What then of a short essay of any document by Charles in the several months before he died that repudiates any portion of his evolutionary belief system? We have no record of any attempt by him to correct the atheistic worldview that his theory was so effectively propagating. Some have suggested that the family had a vested interest in seeing that any such recantation never saw the light of day. However, for any such censorship to apply to any 11th hour article by Darwin involves two speculations. First, that Charles did in fact write such a recantation, and two, that it was suppressed by the family. Note that the family appears to have been unaware of the meeting until 1915 or 16, some 34 years after the event. Also, there is no record of any relevant letter to his closest friend and confidant of his innermost thoughts, J.D. Hooker, who lived in 1817 to 1911, to whom he once wrote, You are the one living soul from whom I have constantly received sympathy. 
And third, Darwin met with atheists Aveling and Buchner on the 28th of September, 1881. Lady Hope was not the only person whom Darwin invited to Downhouse in the autumn of 1881. Two atheists, Edward B. Aveling and Ludwig Buchner, who was president of the Congress of the International Federation of Freethinkers held in London on the 25th, 26th, and 27th September, 1881 contacted Darwin after the Congress had concluded and they were invited by Darwin to lunch with him the following day, that is, the 28th of September, 1881. The discussion after lunch involved Charles, Aveling, Buchner, and Francis Darwin. A report of this was published in 1883 by Aveling in a pamphlet entitled The Religious Views of Charles Darwin That Sold for One Penny. Aveling wrote, We fell to talking on his own suggestion about religion. The first thing he said was, Why do you call yourselves atheists? Very respectfully, the explanation was given that we were atheists because there was no evidence of deity, that whilst we did not commit the folly of God-denial, we avoided with equal care the folly of God-assertion, that as God was not proven, we were without God, and by consequence were with hope in this world and in this world alone. As we spoke, it was evident from the change of light in the eyes that always met ours so frankly that a new conception was arising in his mind. He had imagined until then that we were deniers of God, and he found the order of thought that was ours deferring in no essential from his own. For with point after point of our argument he agreed, statement on statement that was made he endorsed, saying finally, I am with you in thought, but I should prefer the word agnostic to the word atheist. Upon this, the suggestion was made that, after all, agnostic was but atheist writ respectable, and atheist was only agnostic writ aggressive. At this he smiled and asked, why should you be so aggressive? Is anything gained by trying to force these new ideas upon the mass of mankind? It is all very well for educated, cultured, thoughtful people, but are the masses yet ripe for it? Then the talk fell upon Christianity, and these remarkable words were uttered. I never gave up Christianity until I was 40 years of age. I confess that a great joy took possession of me as I heard a statement by its implication so encouraging. The step taken by so many of us had been taken by him long ago. He was asked with all deference the reason of the long delay. With a charming frankness, he made answer that he had not had the time to think about it. His time had been so occupied with his scientific work that he had none to spare for the careful study of theological questions. But he had given attention to the matter. For on further inquiry, he told us that he had, when of mature years, investigated the claims of Christianity. Asked why he had abandoned it, the reply, simple and all-sufficient was, it is not supported by evidence. This meeting and the conversation that took place were confirmed by Francis Darwin in his 1887 Life and Letters of Charles Darwin, in which he wrote, Dr. Aveling gives quite fairly his impressions of my father's views, and concerning the terms atheist and agnostic, Francis made it quite plain that my father's replies implied his preference for the unaggressive attitude of an agnostic. These agnostic sentiments expressed by Darwin were uttered a day or two before his meeting with Lady Hope, if Moore's date of between the 28th of September and the 2nd of October were to be correct, or six weeks before, if Croft's date of the 8th of November 1881 is correct. Fourth, Lady Hope's final account. 
Croft concludes in his book with some quotations from what Lady Hope wrote, not from her first 1915 magazine newspaper story, but from a final account contained in a letter she wrote to a Professor James Bull in the early 1920s, which he did not publish until 1940. In this latter letter, Lady Hope had Darwin calling the book of Hebrews the royal epistle and saying, This book, I never tire of it. She also wrote, And he began to comment on some of the great gospel truths, which I only regret extremely I cannot give verbatim. And then, he spoke of Christ in this way, He is the King, the Savior, the Intercessor, dying, living, and discoursed rather freely and with great animation on the different parts of the subject. And finally, Darwin's reply to her question, What shall I speak on? Lady Hope gives as, Oh, on the Lord Jesus Christ. He answered most earnestly. Concerning the additions to the original Lady Hope story, it should be noted, first, the 1915 account which omits these additional words by Darwin was written when the event was fresher in Lady Hope's mind than it was in the early 1920s, when she explicitly says she cannot remember his exact words. They appear to be somewhat retroactively colored, but also are obviously a clear indication of her impressions. Second, concerning the word Lord, now attributed to Darwin, I am aware of 1 Corinthians 12, 3, b, which attests that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. But also Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. And produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, 8. Acts 26.20 says that when people turn to God, they should demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Fifth, Darwin promoted his theories, and particularly his defense of man, in the month he died. Just a few days before he died on the 19th of April 1982, Darwin wrote a short preliminary notice or introduction to an article by W. Van Dyck on sexual selection in Syrian street dogs. Darwin's contribution was received by the Zoological Society of London on the 4th of April 1882, and the day before that, Darwin wrote to P.L. Sclater enclosing a copy of Van Dyck's paper, very anxious that it should be published. In this preliminary notice, Darwin referred his readers favorably to two of his books. One was his Variation Under Domestication, in which he promotes his theory of evolution by natural selection, introduces pangenesis, and opposes any divine intervention or guidance in nature. The other was The Descent of Man, of which the first chapter is entitled The Evidence of the Descent of Man from Some Lower Form. And sixth, the personalities of Darwin and Lady Hope. First, Charles Darwin. Charles was a frequent equivocator and vacillator. As a student, he was captivated by Paley's watch argument for design, but then abandoned this in favor of Lyell's long-age uniformitarianism in the latter's Principles of Geology that ridiculed recent creation in favor of an old Earth. Then in 1859, in his first edition of his Origin of Species, Darwin did not mention the Creator in the famous last sentence of his work, but added the words, by the Creator, in the 1862nd edition and in the 1861 third edition, only to write in an 1863 letter to his closest friend, J.D. Hooker, I have regretted that I truckled to public opinion and used the Pentateuchal term of creation, by which I really meant appeared, by some wholly unknown process. Despite this long regret expressed by Darwin in 1863, he kept the Pentateuchal term in the 1866 fourth edition, the 1869 fifth edition, and the 1872 and the 1876 6th edition of his origin. 
So did Darwin not have the courage to change it back? Also, Darwin shunned all personal confrontations and public debates, being only too happy to leave these consequences of his theory to the aggressive Thomas Huxley, also known as Darwin's bulldog. And second, we have Lady Hope. Very little reliable information is known about the personality of Lady Hope, except for what Croft has written, based on his extensive research. What emerges is that she appears to have been a lady of energy and integrity. In addition, she seems to have been somewhat overtrusting, possibly even naive, in the matter of her finances, which she entrusted to an ex-convict conman named Gerald Fry, whom she befriended but who then swindled her. So did Lady Hope fabricate her story, as claimed by Darwin's family and Moore with his alleged Fagan letters? See, there's problems for Moore's claims. First, the checkable parts of her story are all true, as conceded by Moore. Second, as a God-fearing, evangelical Christian, Lady Hope had no reason to lie and every reason not to, something which cannot be said of an agnostic, whether gentleman or other. Third, in chapter 10 of his book, Croft has checked two of Lady Hope's other stories, which Moore says were not historic, and found them accurate in every detail, such as the identity of the people described, where they lived, the cause and date of their death, and so on. Croft writes, The overall conclusion is clear. Not only are Lady Hope's stories perfectly truthful, as one would expect of an evangelical Christian, but they are extremely accurate. And fourthly, all the accusations of fabrication against Lady Hope have been brought by people who were not present at the time, and or have shown themselves to be hostile to the Christian gospel. Fifthly, although Lady Hope related her story to a few friends in the 1880s, she appears to have considered it of little importance, or she forgot about it for three decades, until Robertson's Bible studies on Hebrews in 1915 apparently brought it back to her memory. She didn't spend her life promoting it. So, bearing in mind all the factors, and accepting that Lady Hope's story was not a fabrication, what are the possible options concerning whether Darwin converted? First, Darwin converted at some time prior to his meeting with Lady Hope, as she appears to have concluded. But the problems with this. First, at the Lady Hope meeting, Darwin did not personally profess saving faith or give any testimony as to when he might have acquired this. He spoke to Lady Hope commending certain Christian doctrines and the Bible, not to the extent of, I believe, these same doctrines. Second, Darwin professed agnosticism and gave his non-Christian at age 40 testimony to Aveling and Buchner a few days before he met Lady Hope. Three, he promoted his evolutionary ideas and especially his Descent of Man in the preliminary notice article published in April 1882, a few months after he met Lady Hope. Fourth, there is no corroboration from Darwin about any conversion, either written or spoken, either public to the world or private to his friends, that confirms what Lady Hope claimed or interpreted from what he said to her. And fifthly, there is no evidence of any conspiracy on the part of his family to suppress any such word on Darwin's part. Of course, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And second, the other possibility that Darwin did not convert either before or at the meeting. The problems with this idea is that first, Darwin's conversation with Lady Hope would then appear to have been a sham. However, his tendency to equivocate, 
As we mentioned earlier, is a possible explanation for this. When one is talking to leaders of atheism, it is appropriate to discuss atheism, and when to a Christian leader to discuss aspects of Christianity. Second, Lady Hope would have had to have been rather naive to have formed the conclusions she did from what Darwin said to her, even though she was an experienced evangelist and personal worker. And number three, so why did Darwin bother to invite her to meet him? Possibly because he was known for his interest in the good social outcomes of Christian work, having become aware of the results of missionary work among the Fugians. In the end, each reader is free to form their own conclusion from the evidence. As shown, neither of the two possible options is without its problems. My conclusion, for what it's worth, is that he did not. Note that I'm assuming that the original 1915 Lady Hope story is a correct report, and am granting Croft's meticulous exoneration of Lady Hope's character and veracity. In my view, the assumption that Darwin did not convert is relatively easy to reconcile with the available evidence. For those who wonder how Darwin's reported comments to Lady Hope, if one grants their verbatim accuracy, could fit with this conclusion. I offer some more comments about this in one of the side items on this article in the website. However, my conclusion of non-conversion does not depend on them. In contrast, the notion that he did become a Christian seems to be very difficult to reconcile with several aspects. Foremost among these, in my judgment, is his written promotion of both his theory and his powerfully anti-biblical book in Human Evolution, just days before his death and after the Lady Hope meeting. As for the suggestion that this might be because he became a theistic evolutionist Christian, my reasons for not taking this seriously are also given in the side items of this article. Even those, whether a part of Creation Ministries International or not, who disagree with me on this will presumably agree that uncertain claims are not worth relying on, and that therefore it continues to be appropriate for CMI to include Darwin's alleged recantation as one of the items in our list of arguments that we suggest creationists not use. In any case, the truth or otherwise of creation or evolution is not affected by whether or not Darwin changed his mind. Education systems and the media have repeatedly told us that humans and all living creatures evolved from a single-celled organism through random copying errors in the DNA, called mutations, and the reproductive filter of natural selection. This allegedly occurred over billions of years through unguided natural processes, and we are told that the fossil record leaves no doubt that mankind evolved from ape-like creatures. Famous atheists like Richard Dawkins and Bill Nye tell us that we need to face the facts. We're nothing more than organized assemblage of biomolecules. There's no ultimate basis for morality, no ultimate meaning to life, no free will, and no life after death. Humans have no soul and we'll never stand before God to give an account for our lives. As Dawkins says, DNA never knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. But what if the story we've been told about our alleged evolutionary ancestry is wrong? and the latest findings from modern genetics effectively falsify it. Would you believe it? The new film, Dismantled, is a scientific deconstruction of the theory of evolution, a documentary film on the question of origins. Dismantled presents fascinating evidence supported by leading peer-reviewed scientific journals, 
Interviews with several well-credentialed scientists further illuminate how the findings from modern science are collapsing the theory of evolution and simultaneously confirming the biblical view of origins recorded in the book of Genesis. The film documentary Dismantled is available for pre-order at creation.com store. For everyone at creation.com, thanks for listening.